You're listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. It's a very unique time, I believe, for the church, not just Twin Villages Church, but for churches around the world to come together and really practically figure out what does it mean to to love one another, but what does it mean to love others and love our community? And um, we want to respond. We want to be faithful in the way that we respond. We don't want to live... um, in a spirit of fear, um, that is for sure, um, but we do want to be uh, very prudent and very practical in how we think through um, dealing with the, uh, with the coronavirus and the potential impact that that may have um, on our church and on life and on the community, because no matter what happens, right, we stand at a, at a position to really be a testimony to, to, the, watching, to the watching world. And so um, I would encourage you to be diligent, right, and to, to actually and to be prudent in what you do. And if you don't feel good, then, you know, limit yourselves. You know, there's the whole social distancing idea. You know, I am not a hugger anyway, so um, you're not going to get a hug from me regardless, most likely. Um, I hug my wife. Um, so, um, but uh, just be really proud and think through. There are families that are, aren't here this morning because they, they weren't feeling well. They have colds. And I think we just need to exercise um, that caution. So I want to encourage you in that. And Breck already, or Breck, excuse me, Grant already mentioned uh, Philippians chapter 4, um, but Paul writes these words. Um, he said, and says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so we are prone to be anxious. We are prone to, you start hearing these news reports, and it seems like they come in, in waves. Um, we're prone to be anxious people. I'm prone to be anxious, and I need to make sure that I check myself, and I pause, and I pray, and I remember that God is sovereign over all of this, and that we need to just remember that He is in control, come what may. and We can trust Him um, implicitly with, with our lives and with this situation. And then 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 7 says this, um, as I find it, right? For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, right? So as we think about, right, these days and weeks perhaps um, ahead of us, Right? We don't, we do not, God did not give us that spirit of fear, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We have the ability to, to love, and we can love in very radical, very real ways, both one another and um, with our community. And we have the spirit of self control, right? So we can think through and understand, right, what's prudent and what's necessary, right? And you see evidence of the perhaps lack of self-control with the run-on toilet paper and everything else going on, right? But we have a spirit of self so we can think differently as believers and we can respond differently. We need to be thinking very practically through how we live our lives and how we are going to engage with one another and with um, the community in the days and weeks ahead. So I just wanted to share that briefly with you. Um, you'll notice up front perhaps that there's no communion this morning. Um, just, again, starting, trying to think through practically, like the way we do communion, right? It's a little bit very kind of touchy, so we just want to be very careful, right? It's not that we're fearful, but we want to be practical and think through how we do things. So communion will look a little bit different. Hopefully next week we'll get back to it. Um, I'm planning on meeting next week unless we're told uh, differently. So um, anyway, just wanted you to be aware of those things. The elders are aware. We will be communicating with you um, shortly. Um, after Tuesday, kind of just kind of what our thoughts are on how we want to move forward with everything. So there we go. All that to say, we're going to be in, in Jonah chapter 3 this morning. We'll do the whole chapter, all 10 verses. And if you remember last week, we talked about um, this was Jonah's prayer um, in the belly of the fish. We talked about how God was sovereign over creation, right? The, the fish was at the right spot at the right time to to swallow Jonah, and though it may be perceived as being judgment on Jonah, right, it actually was an act of grace by God to save him and to protect him um, in that belly of that fish. 
We talked about how God uses unhappy places, right, to help us, right, learn and to help us grow. And sometimes we're in unhappy places because of things that happen around us. Sometimes those unhappy places are self-inflicted, right? We put ourselves in those positions. As we talk through Jonah's prayer, um, my conclusion was that um, although Jonah's prayer sounded good, I do not believe that it was heartfelt. I believe that he knew the words to say. Although he had a right assessment of his situation, his heart motive wasn't there. He seemed to lack ownership of his situation. He talked about him, God casting him in, God driving him away um, from his presence. But he does recognize that his only hope of rescue is in God himself. But then he seems to almost take like this condescending attitude towards the, the pagans. Right? But he makes this conclusion in verse 9 that salvation belongs to the Lord's. But in a, in, a, in a bigger picture, as we looked at the entire book of Jonah, again, I just feel like it wasn't really there. It wasn't really heartfelt. And in fact, we talked about how we seem to be almost be putting God in his debt, right? If you save me, I will sacrifice, I will offer praise, and I will offer thanksgiving. And it was almost an opportunity for, for Jonah to boast in his righteousness and look how righteous I am. I'm vowing, I'm sacrificing, right? And we, as we thought through that a little bit, right, we, we landed on this idea that we do the exact same thing, right? We try to put God in our debt and we try to boast in our righteousness and look paint a picture of ourselves that is perhaps better than is really true. So, but in Christ, and in Christ only, we can say these words that Jonah prayed, you brought my life up from the pit, and salvation does belong to the Lord. And it got, got us a very clear connection to the gospel, and a very clear connection to Jesus being the true and better Jonah. But now this morning, we're going to read of Jonah now going to Nineveh and preaching a sermon in Nineveh, and we'll see the response of that sermon to the, of the Ninevite people. So let me read Jonah chapter 3 for us, and then we will spend some time in the Word of God this morning. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word, of, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh that by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is, in his, that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said would, he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here and to spend time as a church family together. Lord, I pray for those who are unable to be here for, for various reasons and for, for health reasons as well. Lord, I pray that your hand would be on them, that they would be healed quickly, um, that they would be, come back to us here soon. They are a valuable piece of this church family. They are missed when they are not here. Lord, but I pray now that you would help us to set aside the distractions of, of, this, of this day and of this week. Lord, and if we're honest, those distractions are great. Right? And those distractions can seem inescapable at times. Lord, but I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would help us to, to, to guard our hearts and to guard our minds. Lord, that we would hear from you this morning. Lord, that we could focus on your Word and what your Word has to say. Your Word is truth. Lord, it's my prayer that you would sanctify us in your truth, in your words, 
that we would know you more, that we would love you more, Lord, that our lives would be changed and transformed by our time here this morning. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So, fascinating, right? Because if we look at chapter 3, it is almost like we're back to square one, right? And the, the language is actually very, very similar in verses 1 and 2. The only difference is that there's this little line, right, that he knows to go and call out against the city, the message that I tell you. Outside of that, just it, the wording is almost word for word, and and Jonah responds right by 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 going to the city, right, which is what we would have expected to have happened the first time, right. After all, he is a prophet of God's, right. But he, we know that Jonah doesn't do that, right. But he's called to go, and he's called to he's called to go and call out against the city, and and I want to linger there a little bit, all right, because this is where and I don't want to get into like which translation is better. Right? That's not really helpful, right? especially on a Sunday morning um, at times. But I do believe like the ESV, which is what I preach from, misses it a little bit. Right? Because it is, it is a calling out, but it's actually it's a, it's more of a preaching, it's more of a proclaiming. Right? So there's, almost, there's a subtle kind of way that it, it, it seems a little bit more positive than it did in, verse, uh, in chapter 1. So if you're not in the ESV, if you're in the NIV, or whatever, you might see preach to or proclaim to, right? They're trying to capture that difference, but there's a, there's a little bit of a difference in the way, right, that God brings the word to Jonah and brings this command to Jonah. He's still to arise and go and to preach to Nineveh the message that God would give him, right? And so Jonah, at this time, gets up and he goes to Nineveh, right? And we hear that it was an exceedingly great city, right? And we heard that in, in chapter 1, right? But then there's, there's a little bit more detail added, right? It was an exceedingly great city. This is in verse 3, three days' journey in breadth. And it's actually an, an exceedingly great city, like literally that is a city great to God's. Right, so God has a heart for the city of Nineveh. God has a heart for the people of Nineveh, right? And He confirms that in chapter four and verse eleven when He tells Jonah, "And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than one hundred twenty thousand persons who do not know their right hand from their left?" So God cares for people. God cares for the people of this world for the people of this earth, like He did back then, He does now. And God is sending Jonah to proclaim a message to the people of Nineveh. He wants to reach the people of Nineveh, and it's going to take three days, right, for Jonah to accomplish this task, right? And there's, a, there's been a lot of ink spilled over what does three days' breath mean Right, was it really like three days to get from one side to the other? Right, is it actually like the region around Nineveh? Okay, there's all these different theories and all these different ideas, right? But I believe, right, that for Jonah to go in and to proclaim to the city this message that the God was going to give him, it would take him three days. It would take him three days to visit all the districts and all the people groups and hit all these little parts of the city and proclaim this message to the people of Nineveh. It would have taken them more than a day. Think about the twin villages, right? Think about how long would it take you, right, to travel through the twin villages proclaiming a message and hitting all the different neighborhoods and all the different people that are in this, just in, just in the twin villages alone, right? It was, it's, gonna, it's an undertaking, let alone a city of over 120,000 people. So Jonah is faithful, right? And, and, I, and I say faithful because there's, there are people that believe that it was kind of like a forced obedience at this point. His heart still wasn't really in it. He was going because he felt compelled to go, not because he wanted to go, right? But Jonah arises and he goes to Nineveh. Right, and he enters the city. Right, and if you sit and think, and I'd love to kind of put myself in, 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 in stories like this. I think it's helpful, it's at least helpful for me. If you think about this guy, Jonah, right, arriving to this city that he despises, 
right, that he hates, right, that he has no desire really to go to, right? But even just if you take all that aside, he's going to look different than the people of Nineveh, right? His clothing is going to be different. His physical features are going to be different, right? In fact, there are many that believe that, like, if you spend three days in the belly of a fish, right, you're, you're, you're trying to be, like, digested, right? Because you're, you're, so, like, his, his skin was probably bleached white, right? So it's like this all, like, coming out of winter, right, before you get tan kind of idea. Because, again, they're, like, they're in the middle. So just start thinking, like, practically through, logistically, you've got this pale white guy showing up, right? So, like, he's going to stand out, right? But he goes and he calls out this simple message, right? Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? Eight words in English. It's actually five words in the Hebrew language, right? This, this eight-word or five-word sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's what he's saying. He arrives, he walks in, and just starts proclaiming this message, right? And, and that 40 days, that, that is a significant amount of time. Um, 40 days and 40 nights is, is sprinkled all throughout Scripture, right? It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days, getting instruction from the Lord's, right? Moses lay prostrate before God's in an act of repentance because of the Israelites and the golden calf. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, right? But as we see all of this, don't get hung up on that, right? What I want you to see in that is that God is patient, right? That God is patient, He's giving these people an opportunity to respond, right? And he does this, and he actually just, he uses um, the, the, this word overthrown, and we're spending a lot of time on grammar, but I think it's necessary to talk through this because there is a vagueness to that word, right? In the Hebrew language, there is a vagueness. It can mean, that word can mean destruction. Think Sodom and Gomorrah right? Absolute destruction, being obliterated, wiped off the face of the earth kind of destruction, but it can also mean to be overthrown, which is used here. It can mean judgment. It can mean turning upside down, but it can mean reversal. It can mean change. It can mean change of hearts, right? And so there's a vagueness to that term, Right? And what is meant by that term? And so his, his statement, right, this message from God, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right, could mean that the city is doomed for destruction. Right? Now, if you put yourself in Jonah's shoes, that's probably what he's lobbying for. Right? And he'll confirm this. Right? But it could mean right, that the city is going to experience a transformation, that the city is going to change, that the city could be turned upside down. And so as the Ninevite people are hearing, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown or shall be overthrown, right? Okay, is this we're doomed or there's hope? And maybe, right, that ambiguity in those words is what opened up the door for the people of Nineveh to, to, to respond the way that they responded. To understand that, like, hey, wait a minute, there, there might be hope here. And so they're going to respond to the message of Jonah in a very specific way, in a very radical way. But before we get there, what I want us to spend a little bit of time, a few moments, thinking about right? We have these four questions that are in your worship guides. Who is God? What has God done? Who am I? What do I do? Well, we see God, right, even just in these first five verses, excuse me, four verses, right? There, there's, there's a real seriousness with which He approaches sin, right? And, and there's, there's a certainty of God's judgment for that sin. 
Right? And that's just not just with the Ninevite people. That's for every age and every people group and every person that's ever walked on the face of this earth. There's a seriousness to which God deals with sin. And there's a judgment for that sin that is coming. Right? But, right, don't miss the fact that God is patient and that God is merciful and that God is gracious and that God warns those who are outside His will. And He uses His children to be the messengers, right? Messengers to one another, but yes, messengers to, to others, right? So God has great concern for those who, who are outside His will and who, who, are, who, who are sinful and who are evil and who are, in this case, who are, who are pagan, who are unbelievers, if you will. But He plans to use His children, right, to be the messengers to, to aid in getting that message out to those people, right? Now, He does that whether your heart's in it or not. He still does that work. He still uses it. Now, I want to encourage you to have the right heart motive, right? But He uses you, right, in many, many different ways. He uses you in ways that you probably don't understand and don't recognize and won't even see. He uses you to bring forth the message of the good news of the gospel because He is deeply concerned for all peoples. Now, we see in, chapter, in, in verse 5 that the people of Nineveh believed gods. Right? They didn't believe Jonah. Right? They believed gods. Right? But if we go back, right, and we look at what Jonah has been telling the people of Nineveh, he's been telling them, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Right? Jonah's not mentioning God. God's not in that message, but yet the people of Nineveh believed God. So tell me that it's not a supernatural work, right? They responded, they believed in Jonah's gods, and they responded in such a way that showed that there was repentance and there, there was a fear and there was an understanding of who this God is and what He could do, but yet Jonah's not mentioning Him, but yet they're believing in Him. And they, they, they respond in three ways, right? They called for a fast, well, they, they, they believed God's. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, right? So there's this three stages of response. There was this inward response of belief. There was this voicing by, by calling for a fast, by verbalizing what, they, what they've come to believe in, and this is the God, Jonah's God, is, is, can, can destroy them. And there's this outward response, right, by, by putting, on, putting on sackcloth. Right? And, and, it, and it's the same way, right, with us, right? When we are saved, when God is gracious to us and God saves us, right, there's this inward response, right, of belief, right? And then there's this, this voicing, right, of what God has done, and then there's this outward change that we see, that we do, Right? And although God is not mentioned, they believed God. They didn't believe Jonah, so to speak, but they believed in God's, in Jonah's gods. And the greatest to the least of them, right, put on sackcloth. Right? So that means basically that the response was city wide. Right? But then we have to wrestle with now, okay, what does it mean that they believed in God or that they believed God? 
And like the three days journey, right, there's been a lot of ink spilled over what does this mean? Does belief mean that they believed they believed that destruction was coming to them? Does the belief mean that there was actually salvation that took place here, that they were they were converted to Judaism? Right? So there's all and all and everything in between those things. Right? So I wanted to spend a few moments here because I think it's helpful. Right? Because there's no indication right, that the Ninevites turned from their gods. Right? All the text says is that Jonah brought this message and that the people believed and that God didn't destroy them. He relented. So how, how, we, how do we wrestle with this? Like what happens here? Well, we, we know that the prophet Nahum, a century later, is going to prophesy about Nineveh, and Nineveh is not going to repent, and Nineveh is not going to return, and Nineveh is going to get destroyed. Right, so there's this two-generation-ish transformation that took place. Something happened you know, profoundly um, to this people, the people of Nineveh. Right, but in an effort like to, to think through, right, we need to be faithful to Scripture. We need to learn how to, if you will, put our Bibles together and think through what does the Bible tell us right, about the Ninevite people. We need to turn to Luke chapter 11 and in verse 32. Actually, I'll just read, I'll read starting in verse 29. This is um, the people asking for a sign. Right? When the crowds were increasing, they be, he began to say, this is Jesus saying, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Okay, we, went this, we, went, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she shall come, come from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Here's verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here. So Jesus' words, he says, right, that they repented at the preaching of Jonah to the point where they are going to be present at the judgment and be condemning people. So there's something that happened profoundly in Nineveh with Jonah's message from God, yet in 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. There was a change that took place. Now, Jesus is speaking in, in, in Luke 11, in, in the flow of that, are these, these people that were, that were hankering for a sign. And now they've been living, Jesus had been in ministry here for quite a while, and it's safe to say that he'd probably done some signs and had healed people. But they weren't satisfied with that, and they wanted a sign in order to believe who he was. Now, the Ninevite people heard, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And they didn't tell Jonah, well, okay, prove it. Show us something. We need proof. Right? Who is this? Who's this God guy? Well, you're not mentioning God guy. Who's going to do this to us? You? You're pale, bleach white. They didn't ask for a sign. Right? They believed right? those words. But the people in Jesus' day were demanding a sign. The Ninevites believed this in God, this, this short little this short sermon. But the people had heard many, many sermons and still yet demanded signs and yet refused to believe. Right? It's hard then for me to, to, to think that something, there wasn't a, a transformation, something in their hearts was transformed because they're going to rise up and judge others in that day, in the day of judgments. All we know right from this text 
right, is that there was a transformation in that city, and it was the Word of God that did that transformation in that city, and it was sufficient enough for God to relent in the judgment that He was going to bring upon them for the evil that had come up to Him. Right? So am I skirting the question? Yes. Kind of. But I think we need to put a lot of weight in what Jesus' words are. Right? That they repented right, at the preaching of Jonah, right? So that hundred years, right, that century, there, there was a transformation in that city that happened that God was going to bless, but that God was going to use those people to judge others. The response was great. The, sh- the city was shaken by a single sermon by a foreign prophet who looked funny and probably smelled funny, Right? But God did a work through that man and through the power of his words. And it started, verse 6 tells us, it started with the people because eventually the word reached the king. So it was a grassroots transformation that took place. As Jonah's walking through the city, yet in 40 days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed, people were humbled and people were broken, and they were putting on sackcloth and and, and mourning their plights. And eventually the word reaches the king, and his response is staggering. He is the king of Nineveh. That city rises and falls on his authority, on his power, right? God has placed him there as the leader of that city, but he rules that city. And the evil that is there, the violence that is there, he is okay with because he's the king of that city. And he says, and this is how he responds, He rises from his throne, he removes his robe, he covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits in ashes. He gets down off of his throne, the seat of power, the seat of prominence. He removes his robe. He takes off just this outward sign of who he is and the power that he has. And he covers himself with sackcloth. That's 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 the way that you mourn, right? You mourn sin and you mourn calamity. Things are coming your way. And he puts on sackcloth and he sits in ashes, which is a way to show this ultimate set of kind of humiliation and humility. So the king, the person in the highest position, the highest authority, now is sitting in the lowest seats because of the words, God's words that Jonah's faithfully speaking and these people that are responding this way and the king hears and responds in the exact same way, if not maybe in a greater way because of who he is and the power that he has, humanly speaking. And so he issues this decree. He makes a public statement. He, he's forced to, to speak at this point about how the people right, are to respond to, to Jonah's message. Right? And there's four behavioral things that they're supposed to do. Right? Man and animal were to fast from food and water. Okay? And, and, and I think the animals right there, we can talk about, okay, you're going to put sackcloth on animals. Right? I think there, there's a desperation here that's taking place. Right? And so they're going to they're gonna respond like any way they can, any means possible. We need to respond. So sackcloth your donkey. Right? You, you, we need to respond this way. Don't, don't fast. I mean, to fast and don't eat, don't drink. Right? Put on sackcloth, number two, on man and animal. Number three, you are to pray insistently. You are to pray earnestly. You are to pray with just strength to God's. And then you were to turn from your evil ways and your violence. So, so the king understood something. The king understood that change involved turning. Right? Change involved turning and putting off the way that they were living. Right? In this phrase... Right? Let everyone turn from his evil ways, 
from the violence that is in his hands, right, there's a personal responsibility that we have Ninevite people to Jonah's God, and you're all guilty, and you all need to respond, and then who knows, maybe, right, maybe we will not perish. So the, the, these actions that they take, right, they're, they're, they're trying to, to impress upon, upon Jonah's God, right, the, the sincerity of their, of, their, of their turning, right? We're going to fast. We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink. We're going to put on sackcloth. We're going to, we're going to pray earnestly to you with much power and much passion to this God. And we are going to turn, all of us are going to turn from our evil ways and from our violence in the hopes that this God, the God of Jonah, will be moved to have mercy and to have compassion and to relent. They're going to use every option possible to accomplish this. And he says in verse 9, the king says, and who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Right? The king doesn't know how this is going to end up. Right? Is, is what Jonah is saying, yet in 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed or overthrown, right? is that conditional? That means, like, if we do these things, will that not happen? Or if we don't do anything, will that happen? Like, is, is there conditions here, or is it absolutely unconditional? We're doomed. And he understands that the only way that his Ninevite people would not perish is if this God of Jonah chooses to turn and relent right, from his fierce anger, right, and so that they would not perish, right? But, but in that moment, that king has not a clue what's going to happen. He's got no idea, but they're desperate enough, they're understanding enough to know that they have to act. And in verse 10, right, when God saw what they did how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God told Jonah to arise, to go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil had come up before me. He had seen their evil. He had seen their violence, and he was going to wipe them off the face of the earth. There was this, this destruction-heavy kind of motif in that language. And now we read that God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do. And he did not do it. God responded in a, in a gracious and in a merciful and compassionate and appropriate way because the Ninevites had turned from their evil. He could have wiped them off the face of the earth and been perfectly just in doing so, but they had turned from their evil and so he relented. Right? It was not the Ninevites' good intentions that caused this. It was their actions that caused this. It was their deeds. Now, they did four things, right? They fasted, they wore sackcloth, they prayed, and they turned from evil and violence. Right? This verse says, right, that explicitly, right, that the leading, the reason why God relented was because they turned from their evil way, right? So it wasn't so much the, the fasting and the sackcloth and the prayers, it's because their lives had turned. Their lives had been transformed, right? Something has happened here. 
right? It's some, in some way, shape, or form, right? These Ninevite people who were evil and violent and pagan, right, understood their position before God. And this God is full of compassion, but they didn't know that. Right? But God is full of compassion. He's always ready to be sensitive to and to respond to those people who, who cry out for mercy. And if you were a, an Israelite, right, who was, who was hearing this story, right, and, and hearing the story of Jonah told, right, when, when the words written relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, that is the exact same words that Moses used in Exodus 32, verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. And this is in regards to the golden calf, to the idolatry that was taking place. So if you're hearing this, right, you're hearing those exact same words. There's a grace and there's a compassion and there's a mercy that God has to people. Now, in Exodus 32, 14, it was to his people. And in Jonah, it's to the pagan people, to those outside, right, the, the children of God. And it's the pagan people who receive that exact same mercy from God. And so this passage tells us of just the incredible mercy that God has in his heart, the compassion that he has in his heart for, for people, the love that he has in his heart for people. It's clear evidence, right, that God wish, does not want, does not love and seek after the destruction of sinful people, that He wants people to be redeemed. He wants people to be reconciled. He wants people to understand who He is and who they are and come to an understanding of that truth. 2 Peter 3.9 the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior, who desires that all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? You see the heart of God in Jonah chapter 3. He wants people to come to Him and understand who He is. He wants them to, to be reconciled and, and, and be saved. Right? When Nineveh turned from its evil, God turned from the calamity that He was going to bring upon them. And it was God who did that work. It wasn't the Ninevites' deeds Right? It's God's grace and it's God's mercy that does that work. It's actually right the power of God's Word to transform lives. Yet in 40 days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. That was the message. It's the power of God's Word. It didn't depend on Jonah's attitude. It didn't depend on Jonah's heart. It didn't depend on Jonah's behavior. It was the power of God's words. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's the power of His word to transform. Isaiah chapter six, uh, 55, starting in verse 6 Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and, that, and, our, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Man, it sounds like Nineveh, right? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. 
For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to cover, to seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. It is the power of God's word that transforms lives. It's the power of God's words. In John 17, uh, Jesus prays these words, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. Right? It, it, it's the power of God, the power of His Word that transforms lives, that causes people to turn, that causes people's hearts to change. And God is sovereign over all of this with the Ninevite people, right, despite Jonah's rebellion. Despite that, God's Word still goes out and does what He wants it to do, and it transformed a city of over 120,000 people. It's God's Word that does that. It's His power that does that work. The people of Nineveh came to an understanding of who God is and who they are, and when they understood that, they turned. It's the same way for us, right? It's the same way for us. Right? When we're confronted with our sin, when we see the holiness and the glory of God and the greatness of God, it should cause a turn. And you're not just to turn away from sin right, and turn away from, from the lies that sin tries to sell you. Right? It's, you're, you're turning away, but you need to turn towards. Right? Turn towards something greater. Turn towards something better better, right? Turn to Jesus, right? And so, in, in Jonah chapter 3, right, it, it, what happened to Nineveh, right, happened to Jonah, like, on, on a more personal scale, right? He was the object of divine anger, right? But yet, he experienced right, this miraculous saving, this redemption in the belly of a fish, right, and the Ninevites, right, were objects of God's anger, God's wrath. They heard the power of His words, and they turned and received mercy. And the same is true for every believer, right, who has taken hold of the promises of God, who's taken hold of the gospel, whose heart has been transformed by the power of the gospel through Jesus Christ. Because apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we stand condemned. We are objects of God's wrath. Right, but we heard the word of God. We heard the gospel message, right? And in those moments, right, we came into contact and came into an understanding with the holiness of God and our sin, right, and our lives were transformed by the grace of God. It's the His power, it's the power of His words, and He saved us, right? And so the story of, of Jonah in the belly of the fish, the story of the Ninevite city and the Ninevite people hearing the, a word from God and the whole city being turned, right? It's, it's our story that we've experienced personally in our own lives. That's why your salvation testimony is such a miracle because it's the power of God in your life to save and to transform. Right? And the task is not over Right? I've said it, I think, every Sunday, I think maybe since January, right, that we never graduate from the gospel. We need it each and every day. We have to be reminded of who we are and who God is and wrestle with that and understand that we need the gospel each and every day in our 
lives. Who is God? Right? What does Jonah 3 tell us about God? What has God done? Right? Look at Jonah 3. What did God do? Right? Who, who am I? Right? So how does God's character, how does his action, like how does that shape how I see myself? And then number four, if you believe, right, one, two, and three, how do you respond? Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for uh, this morning. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your words. Lord, there is such power in your words. Lord, and each and every one of us has been transformed by that power. Lord, if we are your children, you have used your word to transform our lives. Lord, and you still use your word to transform our lives. Right, as Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we need to be in your word each and every day because in that is truth and in that is the power to transform our lives. I pray that you would help us to be a people that is passionate for your words, that is passionate to, to see just the transforming power of your word. May we never shrink back from that. Lord, even in these days that lie ahead of us, these days that are unknown to us, that are so known by you, Lord, may we just have more of a hunger and a thirst for your word. May we take our peace and comfort from your word in these days. And I pray this all in your name. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others. And for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit twinvillageschurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria.